If you were here about three, four Wednesdays ago, this passage of Scripture may be a little familiar to you because we preached on wisdom out of the book of James and we, we looked at these verses at the end of chapter 3 and looked at how they define wisdom for us. But it's interesting when you look at these verses that they provide a context for chapter number 4. You know, I, I, I'm not one of these people, I know some folks that, that, you know, they want to dismiss the chapter breaks and treat them like they're not essential, like they don't matter. Uh, but let me tell you something, when, when the chapter breaks were placed within the text, there was very definite design and, and theological ideal behind those things. I don't believe we ought to just quickly throw them away. I've heard preachers do that. I've heard preachers say, well, you know, this is, this is before this chapter, you know, but that really don't matter, and, and they sort of twist the text, and, and I've, I've heard them do that with the verse denotion, you know, denotes and, and everything else. I've heard them do it with the italicized words. They'll say, well, that don't matter. It don't need to be in there. I believe we ought to just read our Bible and believe it. Somebody say amen to that. It gets a lot simpler when we do that. So I believe there's a purpose. I understand there's a shift and a change in thought that takes place from chapter 3 to chapter 4. But I would suggest to you, as this is an epistle, it is a Hebrew epistle, it is a letter that is being written by James, that what he was saying at the end of chapter 3 prefaces the truths that he is going to convey in chapter number 4. And as he closes the discourse on wisdom, he makes a statement concerning righteousness and concerning the way that wisdom and righteousness correlate with each other and communicate with each other. And he uses a word that I think is very needful in this day that we live in. He uses it twice in verse number 18. He says, "...the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make Peace. You know, when we talk about peace, uh, we talk about the peace that the believer has. I, I'm glad, listen, that, that when I got saved, I, I got peace with God. Somebody say amen to that. I was at war with God, but through the righteousness of Christ, I've been reconciled with Him, and I now have peace with God. And listen, where there is peace, there is no more war. Where there is war, there is no more peace. I got peace with God, and I'm not at war with Him anymore. I'm thankful that the peace of God is available to me. The peace of God which passeth all understanding. But you know, as you read the book of James, you'll find it is supremely practical. James doesn't really elevate to the, to the lofty discourses of theological ideals that the apostle does. I mean, the book of James is no book of Ephesians. But by the same token, the book of Ephesians does not satisfy the same practical needs that the book of James does. And I believe that when James talks about peace at the end of chapter 3, he's talking about practical peace that we experience and enjoy in our daily lives. You know, when I look around, and, I, and it's not just the world, I look at believers, it just seems like our lives are in turmoil all the time. You know, it seems like there's always some kind of problem, some kind of argument, some kind of drama. It's like we live in a constant whirlwind at all times. And I wonder to myself, is the peace of God really that effectual if it doesn't bring peace in our lives? You know, the design behind the peace of God, when Paul talks about in the book of Philippians, that, you know, uh, by, be careful for nothing, but with, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. That peace of God that he speaks about, if that is a real and effectual peace, then it ought to bring some peace in our lives as well. 
And again, James is talking about the very practical elements of life, and he's going to point to some things that cause us to lose our peace in our lives. You know, let me tell you something. Job said it this way, and I agree with this, that man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. You do your best, you're still going to have some problems in your life. That, that, I understand that. And I'm not saying that if you address these six areas we're going to talk about tonight, that, oh, you'll never have another problem again. But I know a lot of folks that a lot of the problems in their life are things that could be avoided if they'd simply obey what Scripture teaches us about having wisdom and peace in our lives and avoid those things. I know, and and there's always somebody that wants to point to an anecdotal situation and say, you know, well, I had somebody say to me the other night, in fact, you know, I was talking about uh, a situation. I said, this is the way the world is nowadays. And and this this person, after it was done, they made a beeline for me. And they came up and they said, well, that's true, preacher, that sometimes it's that way, but not with me. And they went on this big discourse about how they were the exception to the rule. And, And I understand that is something times true. But let me say this, we ought never risk offending the exceptions to such a degree that we dismiss the reality of the rule. I understand there will be some, no doubt, that will think to themselves, that's true, preacher, but here is an area of my life where I have problems and I didn't ask for them and I didn't cause them. And that may be very true in your life. But I know a lot of people that a lot of the problems, a lot of the trouble that they have in their life is due to things that they have caused, things that they have. It's not everybody and it's not every situation. But I believe when we know of a situation, we ought to address it. Somebody say amen to that. And so James is going to give us about six areas. You could maybe squeeze seven or eight if you wanted to look at them a little differently. But in chapter number four, where he's going to talk about how we can make peace in our life. How we can have peace and make peace in our life. You know, that's what the Bible says. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And there's some areas of our life that I believe if we will apply Scripture to them, we can enjoy a peace that we may have not heretofore enjoyed. And I wrote a little title down. It doesn't have to be the title that you'd use for it. But it's this idea, how to ditch the drama in our lives. Wouldn't you agree, most of us, we have way too much drama, just way too much nonsense in our lives? Well, Jane's going to give us a few areas. I said Jane. I don't know if Jane's going to stand up and do that or not. But James gives us a few areas that I believe we can do that tonight. I want you to look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Now, remember, he's just got through talking about the peace, the wisdom that's from above, and the peace that, that can reign in our hearts that is pure. And he says this, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Now, let's pause there for a moment. I I do believe that applies to the next two verses. I do believe there's an immediate context. But could we take a moment and just consider what James is saying? He's basically asking this question. Where's the drama coming from? Is the drama coming from outside? Or is the drama coming from inside? You know, here's the truth of the matter. I know we live in a tumultuous world. But I know a lot of people that blame everything on their external situation and circumstances. But have you ever met somebody this way? I, I'm, oh my, I might just, this might just hit somebody. I don't know. Have you ever known somebody that was always at the center of trouble? Always at the center of trouble. And they'd always point around and say, well, it's this person's fault, and it's that person's fault, and it's this person's fault, and it's that person's fault. But at the end of the day, the common denominator between all of it was that singular person 
You know, I've probably been that person at times. I know growing up, I was that kid that when you was in class, if you sat within a three-feet radius of my desk, you was going to get in trouble. Somebody say amen to that. That way, i got teachers in here. My father, he's laughing. He remembers what I, I was that kid in high school. I know adults that are that way too. And James simply says this. Hey, listen, if you've got drama in your life, where's that drama coming from? Is that drama not coming from something, not from the outside, but from something on the inside? Most of us could acknowledge that, that in our lives, most of the drama that we experience and have to endure is not the result of outward circumstances, but it's the result of inward lusts and passions and ugly traits that are not of the Spirit, but are of the flesh. James says it's from the inside. And he says this in verse number 2. He says, "...ye lust and have not." Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. I'd say the first thing he points to is the turmoil of wanting that we experience. Now, let me preface this by saying this. It's not bad to want things, but it is bad to be driven by our wants of things. I wonder this. Is there anything in our life that we want more than we want God. Think about it for a moment. Is there anything, ask yourself that question, is there anything in my life that I want more than I want God? You know, here's a couple good ideas that may tell us if there is. I want you to notice this. He points to a failure to pray personally. He he describes the war that is within them. He says, "You, you lust and you have not. There's some things that you're not getting. He said, you kill and desire to have. You're even willing to get these at the expense of others. And then he says, and uh, ye desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not. You're moving heaven and earth to try to obtain these things in your life. But there's one thing you're not doing, he said, yet ye have not because ye ask not. You know, I'm going to tell you this. I don't know if this is true about you, but I'm going to tell you it's true about me. There's been things in my life that I have fought the hardest for that I never asked God for because I knew I didn't need them in the first place. And I was afraid to ask God because I knew what God was going to tell me. And I'm not saying I sat around thinking that way, but as I now look backwards over my life, I can look and I can see that that was a reality, that I wanted it so bad that I was trying to move everything to get it, and I wasn't praying, I wasn't asking God for it, because I knew what God would say. You know, here's the question. If we really want God more than we want anything else, then should we ever be afraid to ask God for something? Should we be afraid to pray? He says there's a failure to pray personally, but sometimes there's a failure to pray properly. And he says this, Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Let me tell you something. A lot of times the drama we experience in life is the result of us trying to claw and fight and get a hold of things that God doesn't want us to have. And we run into problems and we run into walls and we feel like we're spinning our wheels because we're, we're doing everything we can to make something happen. But we've not even for the first time even asked God for it. And sometimes if we have asked, we've asked knowing it was outside of the will of God. I tell you, one of the first things that will settle our lives is if we make up our minds that God is enough. God's enough. And that anything that I need, God will provide. There's nothing in my life but what God can give it to me. And, you know, the, the, the reality is some of us spend so much of our time in this silly rat race 
And we spend so much of our time consumed with trying to push and work and slave and labor to make something happen that we forget that we've got a God that all we have to do is ask Him. And if it's within His will, He can do it in a moment. Let me just ask you this. I wonder... I wonder how much drama it'd remove from our lives if we just quit worrying about things we wanted and started praying about them instead. Just started praying, just started asking God to do that. And if it's not within the will of God, then it, we didn't need it in the first place. And if it is within the will of God, then God will give it in His time and in His way. But I wonder what would happen if we just leaned back and said, Lord, whatever Your will is for my life, whatever You want me to have, I'm going to sit back and let You give it to me, let You do it in my life, and I'm going to trust You with it. No matter what it is, I'd say that'd probably cut some drama out. I'd say that'd probably get rid of some things. I think there's the turmoil of wanting. But look at verse number four. He says this, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Boy, that's strong language, man. They wouldn't let James in most pulpits, would they? Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I'd say there's the turmoil of wanting, but I'd say there's the turmoil of worldliness in the life of a lot of believers. And you know where it comes from? Look at the next verse. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? He's saying this. Can I put it just this simple way? He's saying you'll never be happy holding hands with the world. When you got saved, something fundamentally changed within you. The new man was awoken by the indwelling and residence of the Spirit of God, and the old man is still present. And inasmuch as you yield to the old man, you grieve the new man. And so you can't be happy living that way. You've heard me say it time and again that there's no one more unhappy than a Christian out of the will of God. And I think part of the reason for the... Listen, we live in a society... I want to say this just right because I don't want you to misunderstand me. I've, I've had a lot of people ask me about, about medicine and medication and, and, and drugs and things like that. People say, well, you know, preacher, are you against that? Oh, I'm not against that. I'll tell you this, I'm not a doctor. Amen? I, 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 wouldn't, I would hope, listen, I would hope that if a doctor came in here wasn't saved by the grace of God, wasn't called to preach, had never opened his Bible and got up and started preaching, that you wouldn't listen to him above me just because he was a doctor. By the same token, I believe God gave us and blessed us with doctors in this world. Somebody say, and I'm not one of them. Somebody especially say amen to that. I'm not totally opposed to it. I know there is a place for it. But I also am aware that we live in a world that is hopped up all the time. I mean, they're, get, they're giving, people are, are getting uppers to get up. They're, get, they're giving downers to get down. I mean, they're, they're, they're giving every kind of drug to balance them out. And we live in a world that is always just vibrating on the edge of insanity. And the church is no different. Could it be that a lot of the anxiety that believers live with is just the result of them walking, trying to hold hands with God and hold hands with the world, and living with a constant lack of peace in their heart because they're always having to look over their shoulder waiting for the chastising hand of God to drop and to fall heavy on their lives? There's no peace like being in the perfect will of God. There's no peace like being in the perfect will of God. The Calvinists would tell us, well, you know, it's God's will for some people to die and go to hell. Let me tell you something. And, and I, 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 this is not a boast upon my faith, but this is a boast upon God's loving kindness. If it was the will of God for me to be in hell, I'd rather be in hell in the will of God than be in heaven out of it. 
Now, I understand God doesn't, it's not the will of God that any man should perish. I understand that. But I'm just saying that, you know, they try to make it out like, well, you know, God chooses some and God doesn't choose others. For some people, it's the will of God. If it was the will of God, I'd rather be in hell in the will of God than to be in heaven out of the will of God. That's how much peace being in the will of God brings. When you're in the will of God, and I'm not saying there aren't troubles. In fact, Paul talked about it. He talked about them being distressed on every side and having trouble on every side. But, but you know what he said? He said, despite all these troubles, there is a peace that abides. There is a, a, a solidarity in my soul, a, a, a coalition formed between the new man, between the Spirit of God, between the Word of God, that no matter what may seek to rattle uh, at, at the outside of the doors of my soul and my life, I know that I'm where God wants me to be, and as such, I can rest and pillow my head in peace at night knowing that I'm in the will of God. But you know, it ain't like that way when you're walking in the world. You're spending all your time. Every, every little bad thing that happens, you're wondering if it's God coming to chastise you. You know, you can never meet any affliction, any trial with faith because anything happens. I mean, car breaks down. Well, maybe God's trying to get my attention. You know, you get a bill in the middle. Well, maybe God's trying to get my attention. You know, I, I mean, listen, uh, you know, all of a sudden you, you wind up in the hospital. Maybe God's trying to get my attention. Wouldn't it be a lot better just to make sure God already has your attention so when those things happen, you can say, well, I guess God's got a plan in this. God's not doing it just to chastise me. He's doing it because He loves me, because He's got a plan for me within this. And I can meet that with confidence because I'm not walking holding hands with the world. I'd say the turmoil of worldliness causes a lot of drama in the lives of believers. I've seen it in the lives of young people. I've seen it, man. I mean, as a youth pastor, you'd see young people go through this period of time. They'd grow up, they'd be young, they'd be walking with God, they'd be excited, and they'd hit those teenage years, you know, they'd start working, they'd get a car, they'd get a girlfriend, everything would shift and change. You know what I'm talking about. You've raised teenagers, you've seen teenagers, I've had, you know, had teenagers in my youth group, and all of a sudden, I mean, it's like they'd aged 20 years overnight, and all of a sudden, the cares and the worries and the troubles of life begin to collapse in within them and all of a sudden they're questioning everything when two years earlier they had perfect peace man they could take on hell with a water pistol and then all of a sudden if they get out of the will of god and i'm not saying it's out of the will of god to get a car or a job or a girlfriend if you're a girl it is amen but i mean i'm not saying it's out of the will of god to get those things that those things are intrinsically bad i'm just saying i've seen a lot of young people go through that transition because a lot of times with those things comes a compromise with the world. And then all of a sudden there's this anxiety and there's this, this torment within their life. And, and you know why? Because they can't meet things with the confidence they used to have. I've seen it happen with older folks when they get out of church. I've seen it happen with all kinds of people. I've seen it happen with, with older, older people. If they get mad, get bitter at God or something like that. Now, it doesn't matter what walk of life that you're in. When you compromise with the world, it causes a torment in your soul. You're, you're, you're stuck in between. You're like a lot. You're every day vexing your, your soul with their, your righteous soul with their evil doings. Lot, you know, you look at the way Lot was, man. He was a lot happier living under Abraham's shadow than he was in the gate of Sodom. You know why? Because he knew he didn't need to be there. He knew he didn't belong there. And you can imagine every day how it grieved him. And you know, Lot didn't even have the Holy Ghost in him like you and I do in this day. But still it vexed his righteous soul. You know, one of the ways we can get rid of drama is just selling out to Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's how you're made to be. You understand that? You're made to be that way. And as a believer, as a new creature in Christ Jesus, you are designed to be sold out to Jesus Christ. And anything other than that, you're going to be unhappy. 
That's one of the ways. I'd say, look at verse number 6. The Bible says this, but he giveth more grace. Now, what is the context within that? I, you know, I, and I almost didn't know where to stick this verse in the outline because it deals with the, the previous two verses, but also deals with the next verse as well. But you know what it's saying? In the midst of this situation, in the midst of this struggle that we have within us between the old man and the new man, God giveth more grace. You say, but preacher, I'm tempted, but God giveth more grace. But preacher, you don't know what I'm up against, but God giveth more grace. We might could say it this way. Whatever your excuses are, God giveth more grace. Whatever your troubles are, God giveth more grace. If we will only enjoy and appropriate that grace. But then he says this. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now, who could imagine a person in a situation such as those believers that, that James described, here they are, they're, they're miserable, they have all this turmoil, all this drama in their lives, all this heartache and headache, they're walking with the world, their prayer life is dead, and, and the Spirit of God living within them reveals to them that they need to live right, they need to do right, pinpoints the source of that, and all they have to do is just yield and surrender to the Lord. Who could imagine someone in that situation that would not just yield to God? Well, James can, it's the proud, the prideful man. The man full of pride that is too proud to kneel before the Lord. Why would he be that way? Because of verse number 7. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'd say there's some turmoil from the wicked one in our lives. I'd say sometimes we let Satan get in the middle of things. And when he gets in the middle of things, you better believe he's going to mess everything up. Now, I'm not Flip Wilson, neither are you. Amen. The devil doesn't make us do anything, but sometimes we do give him an open door. Sometimes we do give him an advantage. Sometimes we do give place to the devil in our lives. And did you know that the only place that the devil can have in your life, he has to be there uh, by both God's permission and your permission? We have to give place to Him. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the powerfulness of Satan. I'm not trying to minimize his, his ability to affect and afflict our lives. But I'm also keenly aware that time and again, Paul exhorts us to not give any room or any place to the devil. Because oftentimes we say, well, you know, preacher, this is something I just can't help. But sometimes through our attitude, sometimes through our ambitions, sometimes through, through our, our behavior, through our actions, we allow Satan to have a a place in our lives. You know, I understand that we may go through some Job moments. And certainly Job did not ask for Satan to afflict his life in the way that he did, but God allowed Satan to do that because he had a divine purpose and plan. And we may go through times like that in our lives. But most Christians that I know, that I believe are, are being afflicted and oppressed and, and dealing with the ramifications of the devil and of sin in their lives, they've not been placed in that situation. They've walked into that situation. James says, when you're faced with that, what do you do? Submit yourselves to God. You see, you can't fight that, but God can fight that. The devil is more powerful than you, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Lord is greater than the devil. And even the archangels learned that lesson, didn't they? Even Michael the archangel, when he durst uh, dispute with, with uh, Satan over the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, Jude said, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Even Michael says, well, he's too much for me, but he's not too much for God. Now, what do we do? We submit to God and we resist the devil. 
Isn't that interesting that that little short formula is given that in that situation the devil will flee? Now, I believe the devil has a cunning and a, 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 I don't want to say wisdom, but a strategy to him. Amen? He's smart. The Bible calls him subtle. Subtle. So why is it that he would flee under those circumstances? Here's why. Because if you submit to God and you surrender to God, then unless Satan has expressed permission from God to be there, then he can't have a place. And if you resist him, then you're not giving him a place in your life. And so given those two stone walls, he says, my work here is done. I can't do anything further. And he turns around and he walks away. He said, but preacher, what if I am, am not submitted to God in my life? Well, then Satan may get a foothold in your life even if God doesn't want him to be. You may allow a foothold in your, in your life that Satan is allowed to have in a place where he can walk in. I'm always interested in, in what it talks about in, uh, you know, in, in, in the book of First Peter when it talks about Satan as a roaring lion. Walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You know the picture I have in my mind? The picture I have in my mind is of a wild animal walking up and down a fence row looking for a place of weakness in which he can enter. Or maybe a, a, a lion surveying a herd of wildebeest looking for one. Just looking for one. Because, you know, he doesn't need all of them. If he can just get one, he's done damage. Just looking for one that he can get a foothold, that he can get a step on. One that will be a little slower. <laughs> that will be a little more sickly. Uh, one of them that will be maybe even a little more stubborn to not want to give up ground that he can pounce after. James says, don't allow the devil to have any place in your life. That's a good way to get drama and turmoil out of your life, is don't allow Satan to have a a door into your life. I'd say there's the turmoil of the wicked one. Look at verse number 8. It says this, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I'd say there's the turmoil of wandering in our lives. It's interesting that he says, If you'll draw nigh to God, God will draw nigh to you. In other words, the people he is exhorting are not nigh unto God, or he would have had no need to exhort them. Remember, I mean, there's nothing theoretical about the book of James. The book of James is immensely practical. Everything that James is telling them they could do before they finished, before they put down and, and, and rolled up or closed this letter, these were things that they could do in their life at that moment. And the reason he tells them to draw nigh is because they weren't nigh. And he's saying this, you know, sometimes the drama in our lives is the result of God having to get our attention because we've wandered away from Him. Sometimes God allows us to go down into the into the hog slop because we first wandered into the far country. You know, I've often thought to myself, if that boy's daddy had been there, he would have never allowed it to get that far. Right? I mean, look at the story. When, when he runs back home, his father's waiting on him. And, and when, he, when he entertains the idea of being a servant, his father just dismisses it. He says, I, listen, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And his father would hear nothing of it. So I promise you his daddy wouldn't have allowed him to be down in the hog slot. But he wondered. He wondered. And his daddy wasn't close by. You say, well, why didn't his daddy follow him? If his daddy had followed him, then his daddy would have been in the far country. Neither one of them would have ever gone home. Sometimes God just has to sit right where he's at. Wait for you to come back. You say, well, I don't know about that. That's not scriptural. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Well, I understand there is a truth there. Uh, but if, if, if we can never get far from God, then why does James tell him to draw nigh? We can get far from God. Peter followed him afar off. 
And he got into a mess and he got into trouble. He said, what do I do, preacher, when, when I find that, that I wake up one day and I'm not as close to God as I used to be? Well, the first thing you do is repent and draw an eye. That's what he says. If you're far away, what does it mean? If, you're, if, if, if this is you, okay, you're right here. And if God's way over here and you got here because you went this direction... Well, what does it mean to draw an eye? First thing you got to do is you got to say, I'm going to quit going this direction. I'm going to do a 180 degree turn. It's not as dramatic as the bottle is round. But, and I'm going to go the other direction. That's repentance. You repent. And then what do you do? Well, you get sin out of your life. He says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. People say sometimes, well, I'm praying God will take it away. Well, if you'd let go of it, He might. It doesn't say... Pray and ask God to cleanse your hands. Now, there's a, a sense in which that is true. But remember, this is practical truth. So James doesn't say, well, maybe if you ask God just right, He'll take it away. He says, no, it ain't God hanging on to it. It's you hanging on to it. So you cleanse your hands. You purify your hearts. There's a lot of stuff in our lives. We're dealing with a lot of problems, a lot of drama, a lot of nonsense, because we're waiting for God to somehow come and wrestle it away when it'd be a lot easier if we just let go of it. Say, you know, I don't need this in my life. This is sin. God's addressed it. God's pointed it out to me. And as such, I'll just let it go. I'll get rid of it. I'll confess it. I'll forsake it. I'll put it away. And, And then once I do that, I believe God will give me the strength to stay away from it. He says, cleanse your hearts. And, and there's, by the way, there's a broader context. You look at verse number 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. It, your sin ought to upset you. Your sin ought to trouble you. Your, your sin ought to grieve you. If we, listen, if we are scriptural enough that our sin bothered us, it'd be easier to stay away from it. But we've become so acclimated and so comfortable in the, in, in the world and in the things of sin that most of the time our sin don't even really bother us all that bad. We've done quench the Holy Ghost so severely in our lives, and we've, we've removed ourselves. And by the way, I'm not fussing at you. You're here on a Wednesday night. You're the Wednesday night crowd. I understand that. But a lot of Christians have, have so severed themselves from, from the, the uh, sensitivity to the Spirit of God and from the preaching of the Word of God and from the prayer closet where oftentimes God does do a convicting work that they've grown comfortable in their sin. They're not bothered by it anymore. James said you ought to be bothered. If you're away from God, that ought to bother you. That ought to bother you. It ought to bother you till you get back close to God. There's the turmoil, I believe, of wandering. Look at verse number 11. Boy, this is going to be tough. Buckle in. He says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? I'd say that there is the turmoil of whispering that we do in our lives sometimes. You know, a lot of times, I, I'm, I, are you ready? I don't, you can't get mad at me because I'm going to say this at me, okay? So I'm not even talking about you. If you want to turn your hearing aid off or go to sleep, you can do that. I'm just going to preach at me and nobody get mad because I ain't talking about you. I'm talking about me. If I don't want drama in my life, A lot of times if I'd learned how to shut my mouth, I wouldn't have drama in my life. A lot of times if I'd learned to bridle my tongue, who is a righteous man among you? (laughs) Let him bridle his tongue. If he bridles his tongue, he bridles his whole body. If he bridles his tongue, he's a perfect man. A lot of times if I'd just learned to keep my tongue, I wouldn't have as much drama in my life. 
I know a lot of people. You do too. We all know a lot of people in our lives that that a lot of the drama in their life is because they like drama. They love it. They thrive off of it. That's why they run around starting little fires to watch people have to put them out. You know, if you speak evil of your brother, don't be surprised when he gets upset. Right? It's practical truth, right? It's practical. It's hitting Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians, but it's James tonight. It's practical truth. He says, if you speak evil of your brother, you speak evil of the law. And you judge the law. You say, well, you know, what do you mean by that, preacher? What does James mean by that? I think there we could probably spend a lot of time really expounding on that. But can I give you a simple truth? A simple truth is this. The law has a structure. And the law has a judge. And you're not him. And neither am I. And so when you criticize someone else, you know what you're saying? You're saying God's not doing a good enough job as being judge. That's what it's saying. There is a structure. God is the one that is able to save and is able to destroy. It's not our place. And as such, when we take that place, we're telling God He's laying down on the job. That He's not doing what He ought to do. And so you say, well, what do I do, preacher? You trust the judge. What, but preacher, what about this? What about that? They said this. They did that. I heard this. I heard that. Well, that's fine. And all of it may be true. And if it is, God will deal with it in His way and in His time. I'm not the judge. You're not either. A lot of times, if we don't want drama in our lives, we've got to cut out all the whispering. And I don't mean whispering like whispering's bad. It just started with a W. But also it conveyed the idea of that which is spoken in secret. A lot of times when we do that, and sometimes it is open criticism, but you know, most of the time it's not. Most of us don't have nerve enough to say it in public. And that's why we whisper it, because we know it might not be true, or we know it absolutely isn't true. He says, you cut that out, it'll get rid of a lot of that in your life. And then notice a final thing. Honey, heat the, start the car up, because we've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> Look at verse number 13. I'm joking. I don't. She, she, you say to yourself, well, she knows you well enough that she wouldn't do that. No, she knows me well enough she just might. So I need to tell her. No. Because she don't know what I'm about to say. Amen. But I, look at verse number 13. James says this. Go to now. Let me sum this up for you. Go to now. Ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. I think that's interesting. I'll tell you what that means in a second. He says, all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I'd say there is the turmoil of waiting that we need to do away with in our lives. It's interesting how he says that. You rejoice in your boastings. Now, what does that mean? Well, I know lots of people that they are the greatest Christian that you have ever met in your entire life. Or at least they're going to be one of these days. I've known, and I, you know, as a young preacher, and I never never went to Bible college, you know that, and if you don't, just listen to a few more sermons, you'll pick up, but... I never went to Bible college, so I was never part of that culture. But we, you know, we are close to a Bible college, and and that's no big secret. We know that they know it too. But 
you know, you, most Bible colleges, man, they're full of young men that are they're just going to conquer the world. <laughs> they're just, I mean, just as soon as they get that degree, that's all they're waiting on, you know. Right now, a lot of them ain't doing anything. But one of these days, they're going to do something. One of these days, they're going to go to the mission field. One of these days, they're going to plant a church. One of these days, they're going to go out and pastor. One of these days, they're going to be an evangelist. One of these days, they're going to do those things. But when you look at their life and ask yourself, what are they doing right now? There really ain't much to talk about. That's not true of all of them. But if you've been around, you know it's true of a lot of them. And I know a lot of Christians that are that way too. Boy, preacher, once, once I get this worked out, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there for this ministry or that ministry or this or that. Preacher, once I get this worked out, and man, I mean, they've, they've really they, they've, they've caught the world on fire for God in their minds. But the problem is, they, they've done so much talking about it, they could have done it three times over if they'd just done it instead of talking about it. You know, there's a lot of people that way. Spend all their time in the theoretical. James doesn't live in the theoretical. He lives in the practical. And he says, go to now. Go to now. You know, that's true not only of what we wish that we want to do, what we're waiting to do. It's true of our worry, too. I mean, you know, Christ talked about that. said sufficient for a day is the evil thereof. And there's a lot of things. I mean, we, imagine how many tears we've cried over things that never came to pass anyway. Go to now. Go to now. Live in the now. If there's something you want to do for Jesus, you better do it now. Because you may not have a tomorrow. And a lot of the, the drama in our life comes from living in, in the theoretical and the hypothetical. And one of these days, one of these days, one of these days, James says, you better be careful because you only got so many days. And one of these days, when you say one of these days, there ain't going to be no more days left for you to talk about. You don't know how much time you have. He talks about the rejoicing and those boastings. In other words, bragging about things you're going to do one day. He says that's evil. Why would he say that? Why is it evil? Because it keeps you from doing anything today. That's why. It's not that, that, that it is the ideal of boasting in something you want to do or rejoicing in something you plan to do is so intrinsically wrong, but he's saying it's become a crutch for you because you're always going to someday do something, but in the days that, like today that matter, you're doing nothing. So he sums it up by saying, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If you know you need to do something right and you neglect it, that's, that, is a, that is a whole day of disobedience. Anything you put off till tomorrow gives the devil a day of disobedience. Has it ever really occurred to you that way? Anything that you put off for another month, that's given, that's given the devil another month of your time. And it's not his time anyway. God, uh, the, the Word of God tells us to redeem the time, seeing the days are evil. You know Why? Because all of our days are going to be wasted if we don't actively do something with them for Christ. We've got to redeem the time. A lot of the drama in our life would just be solved if we just get out of the theoretical and get in the practical and start living for God and doing it now. Not someday, not when this works out, not when that works out. Because, you know, it may never work out. You've got to do it now while you've got a breath in your lungs, while you've got a thought in your mind, while you've got strength in your body. You've got to do it right now because you may not get another opportunity. Now, there'll be some say, well, preacher, that was good for somebody, but my problems aren't my fault. That may be true, but I can confess to you that sometimes the problems I have, in fact, a lot of the time, in fact, maybe most of the time, the problems that I have are things that I've done. 
So let's just go ahead and get rid of this complex of what it's what God and what everyone else and what the devil is doing to me. And let's just ask ourselves this. Is there somewhere in our life that there may be some drama that we could say, Lord, by your strength and help and by my actions, by my obedience, I'm going to get these things out of our life. And I'm going to, I'm going to sow the fruits of righteousness are sown in peace. I'm going to sow them in peace of them that make peace.